If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the 85th Psalm, we'll begin there tonight. Psalm 85. Father, we invite Your Spirit to speak to us now and to teach us tonight and to lead us into Your Word deeply, Father, that we and our spirits might be changed, that our souls might be caught and and captured for Christ, that even our flesh, Lord, would be strengthened as we look to You, our Father, to guide us through these things. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we have Your ear. And we thank You that You speak to our hearts. And we ask that You do so now, in Jesus' name. Amen. O oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains' majesty above the fruited plains. America, America, God shed His grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. O oh, beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years, thine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. America, America, God shed His grace on thee and crowned by good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Probably my favorite patriotic song. And as it starts up, the the melody to it and and the words just just capture my heart. It's hard for me to listen to that song without getting a little choked up, a little little teary-eyed when I think about the America that, that I grew up in, the America that that I believe God had such a powerful hand in, in beginning, in touching the hearts of our, of our founding fathers, the America that our young men and women still to this day stand to defend. And we're now less than a week away from our nation's midterm elections. Oh, can't you just feel the brotherhood from sea to shining sea? <laughs> You know, the battle to control Congress is absolutely fierce. But something else, the battle for the allegiance of our nation is fiercer still. And I'm not talking about allegiance to old glory. I am talking about allegiance to His glory. And we live in days that many of us didn't think we would ever see. And these are days where being one nation under God seems to be more a thing of the past than of the present or even of a hope of the future. But I still maintain that if we the people were simply to open up God's Word and read things like Psalm 85, we could again be one nation under God. If we would devote ourselves to the things of the Lord, the things that are important to the Lord, and understand His hand in this world and His intention still to work in and among His people, this, this country could be turned around. Now, Psalm 85 is a patriot's psalm par excellence. It was written with a deeply devoted nationalism. It comes out of the heart for the homeland. And the homeland is Zion. For Psalm 85 is a psalm for the patriots of Zion. Written from a patriotic heart to those who would care about the things of Israel and Zion and Jerusalem. It bears the sense and the signature of David. I I realize when we look at the heading, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And truly, as we talked about on Sunday with Psalm 84, it's, it's Korah's sons who were the song leaders, who were the worship leaders. Who, who led the people in Levitical praise and into the sanctuary. 
But this one is another one that as you read, you say, ah, that's, that's got to be David. Most conservative scholars would agree to that, that it is probably David who wrote this psalm. I point that out from time to time. I say most conservative scholars. You might ask me, Rick, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the conservative scholars? And very simply, it's those Bible students who take the Lord at His word. And that's why I place great stock in those who have, who have considered themselves or state themselves to be more conservative. Conservative simply meaning that God means what He says and He says what He means. And so we're just going to look at what the Word teaches and take Him at His word. As opposed to the more liberal scholars who would come out and say it could mean all manner of things and, and, and allegorizing and, and metaphoricalizing. But you know what I mean. And so I, I place great stock in, in those conservative scholars, men like C.H. Spurgeon, who uh, I've mentioned a lot in our study through the Psalms. His is probably the, uh, the best treatment of the Psalms of any writing out there. Sometimes I'm asked, Rick, what, what do you use in, in terms of commentary? And my answer to that is, I start with Scripture. That's the best commentary on Scripture is other Scripture. Secondly, uh, the leading of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand things we wouldn't otherwise. But then if you want to get into books, Spurgeon for the Psalms is, is excellent. Just amazing. I love J. Vernon McGee. He makes it very simple. Um, writers like Kyle and Delich, who if you really want to get scholarly, it's two German uh, commentators, extremely scholarly stuff. But, you know, God's Word, if we will just open it and look at it as it is, teaches us more than than any commentator could teach us. So some out there of the more liberal mind, they would reject David as the author. Um, On the conservative side, and where I stand on this, is that David is the author, and in fact the context of what's happening would be Israel under the oppression of the Philistines at some point in their history. Israel oppressed and challenged by the Philistines and under attack and and struggling with difficulty and David responding and and writing. But what he writes, as you will see, is very prophetic. Speaking out to the future. Now, again, on the liberal side, the, the problem is that they will reject David as author and they put the pen in the hands of the exiles in captivity in Babylon. Why? Well, because they read the psalm and they say, well, because it speaks about things that have already happened, it must have been written after those things happened. (laughs) They say it's either the exiles in captivity, or they say that it's those who are just returning from Babylon between 538 and 515 B.C., and at first glance you might say, well, yeah, it kind of sounds like that. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. Well, there it is. The captives restored. So absolutely, it must be at that time, the lower 500s after the people are returning from Babylon. But, but note this. And it may be a small thing, but the writer, I think it's David, says, <laughs> you restored the captivity of Jacob, not Judah. Gang, it wasn't Jacob's captivity, it was Judah's captivity. It was the southern kingdom of Judah that went into captivity. And if this truly were a psalm written by the exiles returning from captivity, it's far more likely that they would have said, You, Lord, restored the captivity of Judah. Because that was the kingdom that was taken into Babylonian captivity. 
And the problem is that when we approach Scripture, sometimes people use the guise of history to confuse the guide of prophecy. We have to remember something that's absolutely critical, and that is simply that the author of all Scripture is not bound by time. What God gives us in Scripture, especially when we begin to look at prophetic things, He's not bound by time in the way we are. You know, it's like those critics who would take the book of Daniel. And they would question the authorship of the Daniel who was alive at the time of the captivity, who, as a young man around 600 B.C., went into captivity and lived out 70 or so years there in the captivity in Babylon. And and there are those who would say, it can't be uh, that Daniel who wrote the book of Daniel. Well, why is that? Because the dreams and the visions written in that book are, are far too historically accurate. So it must have been written after they happened. And it denies prophecy. And it denies a great truth about the Lord who said in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. To deny the prophecy of Scripture is to deny that the Lord Himself is omnipresent and omniscient and above and beyond all these things. O Lord, You showed favor to Your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all Your fury. You turned away from Your burning anger. And these verses have to speak of a day when all the iniquity of Jacob will have been removed. It must speak of a day when all the sin of Jacob is atoned for, covered. All you have to do is read some of the post-exilic books, books written after that exile into Babylon, such as Ezra, which we studied, Nehemiah, which we studied, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. You read these books and what you discover is the people may be restored to the land, but their heart is not restored to the Lord. And so all that's described here that God did, past tense, You showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity. You forgave the iniquity. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. If you take that lock, stock, and barrel, you have to say, wait, that has never happened in the history of Israel. Yeah, but it's written as though it did happen. Exactly. The opening verses of this patriotic psalm are proleptic in nature. I love that word because it describes something that is hard to describe otherwise. Proleptic. Something that is absolutely so assured to happen in the future that it's written about as though it already has happened. My favorite verse to give as an example for a proleptic thing is Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, you are seated in the heavenly places. We're not seated in the heavenly places. But your, your salvation is so assured that it's as though you already are there. And as far as God is concerned, you are. And that's what's going on as we open up this patriotic psalm. David writes that you showed favor, you restored, you forgave, you covered, you withdrew, you turned away from your burning anger. All of these things speaking of a sure salvation for the remnant of Israel. An absolute assurance by God the Father that this is going to happen. And so David, I want you to write this as though it already has. Even though currently in the position of Israel today even, it hasn't yet happened. Oh, it will. Absolutely. Wouldn't it be great to know that our country was marked for salvation? 
to even looking at the election cycle we're in and all the fears and the worries and the doubts and the concerns that people have about America today that we could go, yeah, but you know what? God's promised to save our country. He's promised a home for us forever here. Hate to let you down, He hasn't. (laughs) But He did with Israel. He told the Jewish people, and He repeats it again and again, I have a promised land for you. And your country will be saved. I will bring a remnant of you through the fire. And so all Israel will be saved. Gang, we share this patriot dream. Because while it is a promise for Israel and the Jewish people, it is also something promised to those who are grafted into the olive tree. This is what Paul writes about in Romans 11. That we too are patriots of Zion. We have a heritage in Abraham by faith. We are grafted in. Romans 11.17 If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, and some of you were pretty wild olives, you were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, Paul says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Earlier this week, I got an email from a sister who was listening online to a prophecy update that I gave back in March, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 10. We talked about, it was entitled, Watchmen for Israel. And the call to the church to literally be watchmen on the wall for the Jewish people, to care about the things that God cares about, to love the people God loves. And she was very excited after listening to this teaching. And so she went over to a friend's house. She's describing this in the email. Went to a friend's house to share it with her friend. And the friend's mother blasted her. Her words. Got really upset and started telling her how absolutely wrong she was. And her mother, friend's mother apparently believes all. And and I may offend someone saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm all about offense these days. You know, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I want you to know. She basically went after her, believing all the old lies of replacement theology and preterism and amillennialism. Now, I know there may be some of you here tonight who buy into some of that. We need to have a conversation if you do. Because, my friends, it's interesting to me how replacement theology, preterism, and amillennialism, these things go together. And if you're not sure what those are, quickly, replacement theology is simply saying the church replaces Israel. Israel had its chance, blew it, and now it's all ours. We get the promises, they get to keep the curses. That's replacement theology in a nutshell. Uh, Preterism, in a nutshell, is that everything happened in A.D. 70. That was the tribulation. The fall of Jerusalem... Israel lost it all right there. The church took over and now we are in the kingdom. And by the way, that's amillennialism. There is no literal thousand year reign of Christ. We're in the reign of Christ. The kingdom reign of Christ is the church today. I have a hard time with that because the Bible also says that during the kingdom reign of Christ Jesus, Satan will be bound. Satan ain't bound today. And if someone wants to argue the case, I take you right to 1 Peter 5.8 where Peter says he's roaming around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is not bound. We are not in the kingdom right now. We are in the run-up to the kingdom, praise God, and it's close. But we're not in it now. 
And so I, I know it's strong words to call replacement theology, preterism, and amillennialism this triumvirate of deception. I know it's, it's a little harsh to call it that. But I have to, because these are not just biblical positions that I take. And it's not about me trying to prove that I'm right and someone else is wrong. But I tell you the truth, my friends, if Israel does not have a future hope in Zion, neither do we. If Israel is not given the promises which were given to her by God, then why do we think we will have any promises fulfilled by Him ourselves? Well, because we're the church. Do not be arrogant to the branches. You do not support the root, Paul says. The root, Israel, supports you. We have been grafted in to that great and glorious promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gave a covenant that is an irrevocable promise of a worldwide earthly kingdom reign of someone from the line of David. He promised David this. And you know what he told David that he had to do to get this promise? Any guesses? Nothing. It was a one-sided covenant. And as we've shared in here before, every single covenant of God with Israel, with the exception of one, the Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses, with the exception of that covenant, every other covenant is unconditional. The covenant with Abraham, unconditional. The covenant of the land for the people, unconditional. The covenant with Isaac and Jacob, unconditional. The covenant with David, unconditional. You don't have to do a thing. I'm going to do it because I am the Lord. Now I'm getting way ahead of myself because next week in Psalm 89, we're going to cover a 52 verse reaffirmation of that covenant. If 2 Samuel 7 isn't enough, God comes back around and says, I want Ethan, I think it's Ethan, yeah, Ethan, the Ezraite, writes Psalm 89. And I want Ethan to reaffirm my fierce commitment to the Davidic covenant just in case anybody misses it. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Hand that to anybody who says God is done with Israel and ask them to explain that. God is not through with Israel. And these opening verses in Psalm 85... This patriot psalm, these opening verses speak of that day when God will have fulfilled all of His promises to Israel. But, that's not yet. And the psalmist recognizes that. David goes on in verse 4, Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause Your indignation toward us to cease. Opens up. He writes of Jacob's forgiveness and restoration. Jacob, meaning all Israel, not just Judah, but all of Israel, restored, forgiven, atoned for. It's a done deal. And now David goes on to petition God to make it so. Why? Because he recognizes that God is a keeper of covenants. That God is faithful to His promises. And this psalm is prophetic, pointing to that future restoration, salvation of Israel. Now their past has been laden with indignation and tears. Cause your indignation toward us to cease, he says. Their past has been a tearful past. Their present is a sorrowful state, difficult in the face of what's going on in the world today. Psalm 80 verse 5 even goes on to say, You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you make them to drink tears in large measure. And there are times you could say Israel's entire diet has been tears. 
But the promise of the Lord to His people Israel is a promise of grace. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 reads, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is coming... And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Who is he talking to in that prophecy? Israel. Israel. David says, will you be angry with us forever? Verse 5. Will you prolong your anger to all generations, or literally to generation after generation? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Did you catch that? Show us your loving kindness and grant us your salvation. Why? Because loving kindness is what's required for our salvation. Grace is required. Loving kindness. Another problem I have with replacement theology is that it assumes one people to be better than another. That we actually think that we are saved because we're the church. Or because we have a certain faithfulness that Israel never had. I wouldn't have doubted. I would have walked through the Red Sea having known God was going to do that. Yeah, right, you would have. (laughs) You and I, we would have been just as faithless, if not more so, in the wilderness wanderings. And it is nothing but arrogance to think that we could do any better. To think that they blew it and so we get to have it. Are we that arrogant that we think we deserve more than the chosen people of God? (laughs) Paul says, don't be arrogant toward the branches. Don't start to think that because you've been given grace that somehow, some way, you really have earned it. My mother was right. I am a good person. He goes on. Verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will say. Now, now stop right there. I just highlighted that half of the sentence. I love that. You know, rather than getting all into ologies and isms and rushing off to the commentaries and and going out to other places, what do you think? What do you think? How about this? You know, I I had another conversation just this afternoon with a sister who was saying, I have talked to everybody till I've been blue in the face and I've heard all kinds of different answers to the questions I'm going to ask you until they're just coming out of my ears. Of course, I'm sitting there going, well, why are you asking me? (laughs) You know, go to Jesus. Check with Him. That's what David says. I will hear what God the Lord will say. That's what I want. I don't care what Pastor Rick has to say. I want to know what God has to say about this. I mean, Rick's obviously very gung-ho, you know, uh, supporting Israel. Well, good for Rick. I want to know what God has to say, which is why I invite you to have Bibles open. Which is why I always take you to these passages and say, look, it's not what I'm saying, it's what the Lord has to say. It doesn't matter what my traditions say. And it doesn't matter what my denomination of the past says. And it doesn't matter what my pastor teaches. I've told you one of the things I hate to hear most is, well, we believe that because that's what Rick teaches. Really? Seriously, look at me. You want to hang your hopes on this? 
What does the Lord have to say about this? Isaiah 30 verse 20, God speaking to Israel says, Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, He, your teacher, will no longer hide Himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Interesting. What was Jesus called but Rabbi? Your eyes will behold your teacher. And your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And wouldn't that be a great way to approach any decision you have to make in life? Lord, I know what I would say. And I've heard from my friends and my family and my church even. But I want to know what do you say? What do you have to say about this, Lord? Psalm 32, verse 8. God promises this to us. Game. Embrace this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Yeah, well, I want to run that by Pastor Rick first. (laughs) I will hear what God the Lord will say, David says, for He will speak peace to His people, to His godly ones. Another key, by the way, to knowing that you've heard from the Lord is you will have peace about it. He will speak peace to His people, His godly ones, but will not let them turn back to folly. And that Hebrew word folly, I love this, is literally stupidity. He won't let you go back to stupid. You know? When He leads you forward, He leads you to a good place. He leads you to a place by His wisdom. And this is a great prayer. Once peace comes, oh Lord, once peace comes, please, don't let me slip back into stupidity. In other words, keep me. Keep me. Now, something came up just in my mind as I was reading this verse that uh, He will not let them turn back to folly. I've been asked many times if after the rapture in the millennial kingdom, can we still blow it? You know, if I... Because I know Paul talks about us being caught up and then we're, you know, we're glorified and then we come back with Jesus and we're there in, in that, millenn- that thousand year reign, that millennial kingdom, and we're ruling and reigning with Jesus, but man, can we, can we blow it? Can, can we still sin? And the answer is, in my opinion, we won't. That's not what I'm asking. I'm saying, can we? We won't. Exactly. We won't want to. We'll still have free will. God's not going to remove the free will. But I am absolutely certain He will not let us turn back to stupidity. Like we do sometimes now. (laughs) I'll follow you with all that I am, Lord. Oh, that looks kind of good over there. And next thing we know, we're just doing stupid again. (laughs) But I don't see that happening once we have been caught up. Once we are in our resurrected bodies, resurrected in the way Jesus is in His resurrected body. But... But if we have free will, can't we then choose still to fall? Hey, listen, I have the freedom right now to leave my wife. I do. I could. I have the freedom to to go off and have an affair to change the entire course of my life and my eternity. If I wanted to, I won't. I won't do it. Okay, yeah, Rick, that's that's what people always say right before they're about to do something stupid. (laughs) I won't do it. And I say, I won't do it. I will never leave my wife. How do you know? Because I'm in love. (laughs) Am I capable of such an act? Absolutely. But I won't do it. How do you know? I'm in love. 
but not with Cheryl. Oh, I am in love with Cheryl, but that's not what keeps me sure. So what is it that keeps you sure, Rick? Let me ask you this. When is it easiest not to sin? I would say the most easy place to be righteous and holy is in the midst of worship. When I am worshiping, it's hard to sin. Now, get me far away from worship and sing gets real easy real quick. But man, when I'm in this place and the songs are going up and the prayers and the fellowship and we are, we are you know, lifting up Jesus Christ, that is not an easy place to sin. Guess what we're going to be doing once we get resurrected and we're with Jesus? Worshiping. And we will all say, I'm in love. And even if Satan himself were to say, yeah, but you want to do this, be like, I'm in love. <laughs> I love Jesus so much. I'm with I'm, I'm worshiping. Don't bother me with that stupidity. I'm not slipping back to that now. I think once we have that view of Jesus, it will be impossible. We'll have free will. But that freedom will be so caught up in absolute love for Christ and worship. Let me put it this way. I believe there's a point of no return. And often we've used that phrase for a negative. A point of no return where you've rejected God. I think there's a point of no return where you have accepted Jesus. And you will never go back to that folly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, Paul writes, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How do I know my toil for the Lord is not in vain? Because the work of grace, once received and implemented in a life, is thorough. The work of grace spreads out thoroughly in our lives and hearts to the point that once we are resurrected, we, are be, we will be so graced by Jesus Christ that I believe we will want nothing else. The plea of verse 7, let us not turn back to folly, is cemented in the petition of verse 8, show us your loving kindness, your grace, O Lord. This is the patriot's dream for Zion. Show me your grace. Let me walk in your grace. Verse 9, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. That glory may dwell in our land. He says in verse 10, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Where? Where did loving kindness and truth meet? In the person of Jesus Christ. John tells us in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Loving kindness and truth. Tell you what, every time you see that pairing, and you're going to see it a few times in the Psalms, every time you see loving kindness and truth paired together, it is speaking about Jesus. Because grace and truth are realized in Him. He goes on and he says, Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I like that. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other? Okay, when do righteousness and peace make out? In the reign of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth are realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Righteousness and peace make out in the reign of Jesus. Why do I use that phrase? I chose it on purpose. And it's not to be silly or offensive. 
It's because the picture the psalmist is painting here of righteousness and peace is of these two entities falling madly in love with each other and into each other's arms like lovers after a long separation. Because right now on planet Earth, righteousness and peace are not together. In fact, I'll put it this way. Why don't we have peace on earth today? Because we don't have righteousness on earth today. And you cannot have one without the other. You will not have true peace without righteousness. And when you have righteousness, you're going to have peace. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And in this current election cycle, that's good news. Verse 11. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from the heavens. I like that verse too. We use it a lot when we travel through Israel. If you go with us to Israel in March of 2012, put it on your calendars, you will hear that verse several times. Several times, truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. And it's wonderful because the evidence of all that is claimed in the Hebrew Scriptures just pops up right and left as though it's coming right up out of the ground there in Israel. Some of the archaeology, some of the digs, some of the places and the locations, it's just astounding to stand in the, the synagogue in Capernaum that Jesus taught in. Wow! Truth springs from the earth. Was there ever really a Pilate? Well, you know, if you've gone, you've seen, there's a, there's a replica of an inscription that has Pilate's name on it that was discovered in 1964. And before that discovery, no one really knew if Pilate existed or not, except that it said the Bible that he did. Truth springs from the earth. And you see this all throughout the land, that truth just seems to spring right out of the ground, even as righteousness is looking down from heaven. And I'll tell you something else. The fact that the land remains there and that the people even exist is self-evident to the fact that God's righteous eye remains on Israel. Truth from the ground. Righteousness looking down from heaven. You might make a note of this. The word truth there is emet in the Hebrew and it literally means firm or firmness because His faithfulness is firm. And truth is firm and absolute. Verse 12 Indeed, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Talk about amber waves of grain. No one and nowhere, and no one has ever seen and nowhere has ever been as fruitful as Zion will be in the millennial kingdom. And even today, you know, it's remarkable that Israel is the third largest producer of fruit in the world. Incredible. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 23. He will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous. On that day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. The land will yield its produce. Verse 13. Righteousness will go before Him and will make His footsteps into a way. And even today, God makes a way. For us, Jesus blazed a righteous trail for us to follow and to walk in. How then shall we live our lives? People ask. After coming to Jesus, what do I do? You follow Him. You walk the way He walked. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 1, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love 
Just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You want to know how to live? Man, you walk in the righteous path that Jesus has already walked for us. Psalm 85, a a patriot psalm for Zion. Psalm 86. Now in the heading says, a prayer of David. But what's interesting in the heading of Psalm 86 is it's literally in the Hebrew a tefillah. A tefillah of David. Tefillah is the word that we have that, that is described or, or translated prayer. But Psalm 86 is one of only five psalms in the entire collection with this particular label. A prayer of David. So this is not just a song. And many of the songs are prayers, and many of the psalms are, are hymns of worship that come out prayerfully, but this one is designed literally to be prayed through. And the patriotic threat continues here, but it gets more personal, which I kind of like. Because Psalm 85 des- des- describes you know, the love for the land and a patriotism for the nation, a national sort of calling out to the Lord, whereas now we get to Psalm 86 and it is a personal calling out to the Lord. Which should remind us that the only way a nation is saved is when it begins one heart at a time. That our national salvation requires a personal salvation. And I would disagree with some on the world stage that that talk about a community or a communal salvation. That we're all kind of saved if the country is saved. No, you're saved because you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And as that spreads out among the people of this nation, then the nation could be saved. But it's not flipped upside down as some would have us believe. Something else in the psalm just to note before we get into it. You will see, uh, because I'm going to give you some Hebrew eyes here. You'll see seven times that a, a name for God is used. Not Yahweh and not Elohim. But David in this prayerful psalm seven times calls the Lord Adonai. Adonai. He does it in verse 3. He does it in verse 4. In verse 5, in verse 8, in verse 9, 12, and 15. And I'll point this out as we go along. Adonai. Adonai is that Jewish title of incredible reverence. It means sovereign Lord. And the root word, and and note this, the root word for Adonai is Aden. And Aden speaks of firmness. In fact, it literally is, is translated a base into which pegs were inserted to hold pillars upright. Eden. And Adonai breaches out or, or branches out from that, Adonai being sovereign Lord, that is a very firm and trustworthy source of base into which pegs are inserted to hold pillars upright. And hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. The psalm divides, Psalm 86, into three sections. In the first one, David prays for gladness. He prays for gladness, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. You, my God, O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. And by the way, there's nothing arrogant or pretentious about saying that you're a godly man. Hey, if you're following after Jesus, you're a godly person. That's your desire. It may not always describe your exact behavior, but if it describes your heart, all right. I want to be known as a godly man. Don't you? Ladies, don't you want to be godly women? Gentlemen, don't you want to be godly men? And so when David says, I'm a godly man, he's not going, <laughs> check me out. No, remember, he just said, I'm afflicted and needy. I'm a you know, 20-pound weakling, but, but, 
following after You, Lord. I am a godly man. O You, my God, save Your servant who trusts in You. He says in verse 3, Be gracious to me, Adonai, for to You I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of Your servant, for to You, Adonai, I lift up my soul. Now there's something key here, gang. If you are looking for gladness in your life, if joy is elusive to you, there is a key David gives, this is the way to pray. You see, the world says, indulge your flesh and you'll be glad. No. Do what makes you feel good and that will bring about gladness. And it never works because you always wake up the next morning and go, I'm back to where I was. It never lasts when you try to indulge the flesh. The religious... Now listen... The religious says, care only for your spirit, and you'll be glad. You know, as we talked about Sunday morning a little bit, deny the flesh. And just, just, just be in the spirit only, always. But what does David say here? Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. David says, take my soul, Lord, my thoughts, my will, my emotions, and make them glad. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. My mind in His power. My soul in His command. My thoughts captive to Christ Jesus. And you know what's wonderful? The, the world would tell you this is an oppressive thing. Oh, trying to hold every thought captive to Jesus. Wow, that's a churchy, heavy-duty, difficult, weighty, burdensome thing to try and do. Uh Uh-uh. It is the key to thinking glad thoughts. It is the key to being freed from a depressed mind to say, Lord, you've got to take my mind into your own hands. You take my soul. And you fill my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Take charge. Of my thoughts, O Lord. For you, verse 5, Adonai, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness. Listen, listen, you might want to underline this. To all who call upon you. To all who call upon you. Where is the moment of salvation? Now people argue this point. You know, there are, there are churches and, and entire denominations out there that say baptism. You know, until you're baptized, you're not really saved. That's, that's the key moment. Right there. You come out of the water, especially on a cold day out of the pond, that's it. That's when it's happened. And there are others who will say, no, it's that, it's that moment when you were first aware of the Lord. There are still others who would say, as I became a more loving person. You know, you know what my answer is? I don't think it matters. I think the, the more reasonable question is, are you in love with Jesus right now? We love we get wrapped around the axle in the past. Yeah, but when did it happen? I gotta know, I gotta know when it happened. Well, you know what? The Lord did give us baptism for this reason, not to show us when we were saved, but to show us when we know that we absolutely responded and made it in, in our commitment. You know, it's that physical, tangible outward action, public action, that displays to the world and even sometimes to ourselves, what already went on, heart, mind, and soul. 
when I already made that decision for Christ. But I love what, what David writes. Lord, you're good, ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness or grace to all who call upon you. And I would submit to you, if you have to have a starting point, that's it right there. The moment, the second, the microsecond, the nanosecond. Is there a smaller second than a nano, Rachel? I'm sure there is. That, that instantaneous response to God when you called out on the name of the Lord, that's where your salvation began right there. Now, it may be like me where most of my life was learning how to trust the Lord, you know, raised in church and, and looking back on, when did I really... Because I was walking kind of the whole time up this hill. Or was it like less when, kaboom, it was an instantaneous, that's it. I, I don't think it really matters. Have you called on the name of the Lord? David says he is standing there ready to those who call on Him. Paul said in Romans 10.12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That seems pretty simple. It's religion that complicates things. But what this means is that if you are a conscious being, you can be saved. If you can experience or offer up the thought, Jesus, I believe in you, you can be saved. So who does that disclude? Possibly my dog, Reggie. Sentient, conscious beings, if you happen to be in that group, which I think most of you are here tonight, you can be saved. (laughs) But did you know that even your prayer to be saved did not originate with you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Here's a dramatic thought for you. God gave you the prayer for your salvation. Even that I can't claim for myself. Even that I have to ascribe to His grace. That He loved me so much that He even said, Rick, do you want to believe? Here's the prayer. Just say Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit enables me to say Jesus is Lord and therefore to be saved. How great a grace is that? Marvelous. To call Jesus Lord means that the Holy Spirit already started the ball rolling in your spirit and it's rolled right on into your conscious mind. And I love that scene with Peter there and and you know we've looked at this before. Peter saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's confession was not Peter's confession. It was God-given to his heart for him to respond. And I don't believe that scripture reference is up there. In fact, there are a few tonight that are not going to be up there because last minute I was throwing new ones in. Okay. So if that's the case, why aren't people lining up to get saved? If God is the one by His Holy Spirit who gives the words of salvation to our hearts to speak to the Lord, why don't we just have people out the door saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord? Because, my friends, realization is not the problem. Rebellion is the problem. 
And God is speaking those words to the heart, I believe, of every person. The question is, will my heart say, okay, I want to speak that? Or will my heart say, nope, nope, I don't want it. It's not for me. Rebellion is always the core issue as to whether or not someone is going to believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, going on. David says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. And there is an assurance here, and as David prays for gladness, his gladness is rooted in the affirmation of his salvation. He knows God hears him. He knows God responds to him. He knows even those thoughts of salvation come from the Lord, and so... David can be glad. Now it continues on, second section here. David prays for guidance. For guidance, verse 8. There is no one like you among the gods, Adonai, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, Adonai, and they shall glorify your name. That's prophetic. Verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. David recognizes here how far-reaching the rule and reign of Christ will be. It's not just for Israel. It is for all nations. There is coming a day when, as verse 9 says, all nations whom you may shall come and worship before you. And there are plenty of prophets who agree with that and restate that in different ways. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And by the way, that is not a spiritualized form of the word earth. That is the earth. God will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and His name, the only one. Zechariah 14.16, he goes on to say, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, what we were talking about earlier today, Don. Feast of Tabernacles, that most glorious, wonderful Feast of Israel, will be shared by all the nations annually during the Millennial Kingdom. Can you even... I mean, can you even imagine that? I joked earlier, the whole idea of brotherhood from sea to shining sea in America is inconceivable. Much less all the nations of the world worshiping God. All the nations of the world going up to Jerusalem to pay homage and worship to Jesus Christ. Only Adonai could pull that one off. (laughs) Only God can make that happen. The sovereign Lord, the reigning Christ, in His righteousness kissing peace. Verse 11. David says, Teach me your way, O Lord. And I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So he talks about the guidance of the nations, and now he talks about his own guidance. Teach me your way, Lord. And I'll walk in your truth. He doesn't say, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I'll take it under advisement. Tell me what to do, and if it fits my personal paradigm, well, if it's you know within the range of my belief system, I'll do it. I'll consider it. No. He says, teach me your way, Lord. I will walk in your truth. Lord, there is Yahweh, not Adonai. I'll walk in your truth. You be my teacher. Unite my heart, he says, to fear your name. Unite my heart. What does he mean? No more divided interests. I want a unified heart. A singular heart. 
By the way, what, what goes what goes vroom, 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 vroom? You know? It's a blonde driving through a flashing red light. My apologies to all of you who are blonde, but as long as I'm in deep water, a man was getting into his car when he noticed there was a crack in his rear tail light, so he starts thinking about that, and he's concerned that the turn signal may be out. And so he asked a, a, a very nice-looking blonde lady walking by, he asked her, Ma'am, could you look and tell me if my back blinker is, is working? And she looked and said, Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. <laughs> Yes, no. Do we respond to Jesus that way? Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. David says, give me an undivided heart. Unite my heart to the fear of your name. Let everything that my heart is about not be yes and no, but yes in Christ Jesus. Only yes, Paul said it, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. Amen in Him. And that's how to pray. By the way, if you want an undivided heart, pray these words, yes, Lord. Whatever your will. Yes, Adonai. Whatever you say. Yes, Father. Whatever is on the agenda for this day or this week or my life, whatever you have for me, Lord. Yes, Lord. And let me just ask you this very serious question. What other interests divide you from total interest in the Lord? I know what mine are. What are the interests of your life that would distract you or divide your heart from fully and wholly and wholeheartedly following after Jesus? Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, Matthew 5.8, for they shall see God. The pure in heart, what does that mean? Well, the word pure is karthos in the Greek. It's where we get our word cathartic. It means completely cleaned out. It means it means plaque-free arteries. Okay, he's saying the pure in heart, an unclogged heart, is what is required to see God. And note this, in verse 11 he says, unite my heart. Well, when he unites my heart, guess what happens? It ignites my heart to worship. Verse 12, I will give thanks to you, my Lord. Lord, oh Lord my God, that's Adonai, with all my heart. First, Father, unite my heart. Second, Lord, once that happens, I'll give thanks to you with all my heart. Because nothing will be divided out. Nothing will be missing. There will be nothing that draws me away from worship. Everything draws me to worship when I have a united heart, united to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And he says at the end of verse 12, and will glorify your name forever. And I can't wait for the day when I have a fully united heart to worship Him forever. Verse 13, For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, death, hell, you might say. You've delivered my soul. That is such good news. In fact, you know, right right here where we sit tonight, just thank God that you're not going to hell. 
I'm seeing some nodding heads. Thank you, Lord, that we are not going to hell. Thank you, Lord, for protecting me from Sheol, that I'm not bound for hell. That is among, among the greatest reasons for gladness. Is where I'm not going, and where I know I am going, my direction, the future gates, the city of Zion, the heavenly Zion, New Jerusalem. This is where I'm headed. I'm not bound for hell. I was. <laughs> but I'm not now. So David prays for gladness, and he prays for guidance, and finally David prays, verse 14, for grace. O oh God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, Adonai, seventh time the name is used, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in, here's the pairing again, loving kindness and truth. Grace and truth realized in Jesus Christ. You know, speaking of realizing Jesus Christ, I asked the question before, back in verse 10 of Psalm 85, loving kindness and truth have met together. Where are loving kindness and truth, grace and truth met? In the person of Jesus And seven times in this psalm, we've noted that David calls God Adonai. And I told you the definition of Adonai. Let's revisit that. The root of Adonai. Adonai meaning sovereign Lord, firm, secure, sovereign Lord. And the root being Aden. And Aden means a base into which pegs were inserted to hold pillars upright. Thought about that today. A base. A foundation that is solid. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the base. A base into which pegs are inserted. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 23 says, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Gang, Jesus is Adonai. He is our sovereign Lord, the firm foundation into whom was driven the pegs, the nails of crucifixion, to do what? To hold the pillars in place. What pillars? Revelation 3.12 tells us, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Put that together. Adonai, he is the one. Jesus, the foundation, the base into which the pegs were driven to secure the pillars, believers, in new Jerusalem forever. Wow. Psalm 86, if you want to give it a title then, is a prayer to the pegged foundation, Jesus Christ, our Sovereign Lord. You know, we we talk about from time to time the sacrifice of our forefathers in this land. And we do so with great patriotism. And I was listening on the radio today and, and a commercial came on, a Tea Party ad, Tea Party commercial, calling all patriots to get out and vote. For the Tea Party. You know, I mean, that was kind of the implication there. And I would, I would echo that. Tuesday, November 2nd, is a day to vote. Get out and vote. Vote right. (laughs) 
Pastor Rick, you're walking a fine line. <laughs> How do I vote right? Did you hear this in the back? By not voting left. No, here's how you vote right, correctly. You vote with your faith. You vote with Jesus in your heart. You vote, you know, I'll tell you what, you vote against the murder of millions of babies. You vote against that. You vote for things that are moral and right and true. You vote your moral. You don't separate out my politics from my belief, my religion. No, you don't separate that. You vote what you know to be true and right and good. You vote, and if I may make this plug, you vote for Israel. I didn't know Israel was on the ballot this year. Oh, it is. In fact, I'll share more about that in just a moment. But listen, here's the thing. We can talk about patriotic fervor and getting out and voting, and we need to do so. But I am, I am a patriot of Zion first. I love my country. But I am a patriot of Zion by the spilled blood and the sacrifice of my forebear, Jesus Christ, before all other things or places. And that would be spoken by an American, by a Russian, by an Iranian, by any country in the world, by an individual who believes first and foremost in Jesus Christ. He is my sovereign Lord. And so wherever I live and whatever I do, He's first. I'm a citizen first of Zion, second of the United States of America. And in verse 16... David says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you O Lord have helped me and comforted to me save the son of your handmaid what in the world is he saying there why does David define himself as a son of thy handmaid you know what he's saying here He's saying, I am as completely a child of yours as a son or a daughter of a slave girl would belong to the master. You see, if if someone had a slave and that slave had a baby, that baby belongs to master. And so David calls himself, I'm a son of your handmaid. I am a slave to you. First and foremost, I am your servant. I belong completely and totally to you. Now remember, there may be some evidence out there or there is some evidence that David was rumored in his day to be illegitimate. Some thought he was. Some thought he was born of a handmaid. Curious what the rabbis tend to teach about it. But some say he was illegitimate or thought to be illegitimate just in the same way Jesus was thought to be illegitimate but truly wasn't. David doesn't mind. David would say with all gladness And guidance and grace, he would say, Lord, I belong completely to you. So if I'm a son of a handmaid, good. I belong to you. You are my master and I am your servant. Verse 17, show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Amen. So, Psalm 85 was a psalm for the patriots of Zion. Psalm 86 a prayer psalm to the paved foundation. 
It is patriotic as well, but that patriotism is bound up in the sovereign Lord, Adonai, who is Jesus. Psalm 87 is a patriot psalm for Zion. Verse 1. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And it's one of the more interesting truths of Scripture. That God loves Jerusalem. God just loves Zion. He has a passion for the place. There's the one city in all the earth, you know, Bible students, that he says, I'll put my name there. He says that more than once. He calls Jerusalem the apple of his eye. He says, I love Zion. This is, this is my capital city. It's the one place he has chosen. The gates of this physical city as his capital on earth. Satan's capital will be Babylon. It's another study for another time. But anyone who goes against Zion, anyone who tries to divide it or seeks to undermine it, will be themselves divided and undermined. And the scripture is very clear about this, Zechariah 12.2. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling, reeling as in drunkenness, to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people, and all who lift it, that is, all who try to do something with it, will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. God loves Jerusalem. There are those who say the downturn of George W. Bush's popularity as an American president came with his handling of the war. I disagree. His popularity began to turn in a negative way. And I'm not, I'm I'm speaking apolitically here, okay? I'm just telling it as I see it. His popularity began to go downward, if I'm reading Scripture right, when a little document was produced called the Roadmap for Peace, which called for the division of Jerusalem. Divide out East Jerusalem and give it to the Palestinians, and then the Jews can have the other side. Well, East Jerusalem also contains the old city, the Temple Mount, and all the most holy places of the Jewish people. The places that God said, not only will I call my name, but there on the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, the Mount of Sacrifice, the Mount of the Temple itself, the most holy spot on the entire planet because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was on that mountain ridge that Jesus was crucified. Let's give it to the Palestinians. And I think that started the downward spiral for President Bush. I do. And who could have foreseen the epic, dramatic slide of Barack Obama's popularity. It was two years ago, gang. Again, politics aside, whether you agree with either man or not, politics aside, you look at Barack Obama, and two years ago, he was, he was going around the world. He spoke in Paris to such a turnout of people, they had massive screen TVs just so all the people could see his face. And you'd watch that going, this guy, where'd he come from? And people loved him and adored him. And he rode into the presidency. It was huge. One of the most popular ever elected in the day of his election. And it was almost instantaneous. And people say it's a health care bill. 
That's what it was. You You know what one of the very first things he determined when he hit office? We are going to divide Jerusalem. Palestinian state. No president in the history of America has so contentiously sought to divide Jerusalem and parcel out Israel as our current president has. He went from where President Bush was and just went... His popularity in Israel today, I believe, is about 4%. I love this Tuesday, yesterday, in a Ruth Sheva newspaper, Israel News. Message to the world. Jerusalem gets top priority development status. The Ministerial Committee for Legislation approved a bill that will grant special benefits to the capital, including incentives for construction in western, eastern, and northern Jerusalem. The committee's approval means the bill will have official government support when it comes up for its Knesset votes. Some 45 MKs, that's their congressmen, are signed on to the proposal, which should have no trouble passing in the Knesset. That's their Congress. The bill calls for an annual government grant to Jerusalem as well as an upgrade of its status for the encouragement of investments in education, housing, and employment. Jerusalem will now enjoy the highest priority classification in the country with the goal of stopping the recent exodus of young couples and strengthening the city's Israeli status. The upgrade in Jerusalem's city status was initiated by M.K. Uri Ariel of the National Union Party, who said, quote, The true message given by the passage of this bill is the government's change of direction regarding Jerusalem and a signal that construction in the city will soon be unfrozen. Now, if you've tra- tracked this at all, you know that there's been a, a building freeze in Jerusalem. That the Palestinians are calling for an absolute freeze on any West Bank territory, which includes East Jerusalem. The bill, which is a set of changes and emendations to the existing Jerusalem law, specifically encourages the construction of affordable housing complexes to be accomplished by simplifying the planning and the approval processes. Many of the city's reserves for future housing lie in neighborhoods such as Pisgat Za'ev, Gilo, Ramot, Envi Ya'akov, and Harhoma. I had to practice that earlier. which were liberated in the Six-Day War in 1967. Liberated, the Jewish people would say, occupied, the rest of the world would say. But I love the way this article concludes. And therefore, some international condemnation of the bill is expected. (laughs) I would say expect massive international condemnation because the world doesn't get it. The world does not understand, not yet, verse 4, I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. What's he saying? Well, Rahab is Egypt. It's another name for Egypt. Egypt with its glorious past. And Babylon is there mentioned with its pomp. And Philistia with its power. And Tyre with its prosperity. And Ethiopia with its exotic pleasures. And these places are named, and all these were places of great historical power and strength and influence. And therefore, these are places that people would have been proud to say, I'm from there. I was born in Babylon. Yeah, I was born in Rahab, Egypt. I was born in Philistia. I I, I hail from Tyre, Ethiopia. That was my home. 
And what the psalmist is doing here, actually the sons of Korah, and I think this psalm was likely written by one of the sons of Korah, but they're just saying, this is elevated status. You know, this is saying, I was born in this place, you know? I wasn't born in some little hut, you know, out there in the sticks. I was born, yeah, in Babylon. By contrast, they write in verse 5, but of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her and the Most High Himself will establish her. (laughs) So much for all you other cities. So much for the grand and glorious cities of the world, those places of commerce, New York City, of power, Washington, D.C., of pleasure and entertainment, Hollywood. Big deal to say you were born there. But to say I was born in Jerusalem, guess what? The Almighty established that city. This city belongs to God Himself. Verse 6, The Lord will count when He registers the people. This one was born there. Where? In Zion. You can just see God doing it. As the, as the census is taking place and people are coming up, yeah, I was born here, I was born there. And someone says, I was, I was born here in Jerusalem. And the Lord goes, right on. <laughs> My city. Yeah. And then he says, those who sing as well as those who play the flutes shall say, all my springs of joy are in you. All my springs of joy. Gang, this psalm is the promise of the coming capital of the millennial kingdom, Zion itself. God's city will gleam on that day, will be marvelous on that day, and those who are born in her will be, will be able to say, I was born there. And it's on that day when righteousness and peace have kissed. Righteousness and peace. Zechariah 6.13 Yes, it is He who will build the temple of the Lord and He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne and thus He will be a priest on His throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. As King, Jesus will bring peace. As priest, Jesus will provide righteousness. Righteousness and peace will meet. Now, as I said before, I love America. But first and foremost, I am a patriot of the city of Zion. A patriot, a watchman of Israel. Why? Why should I care about Jerusalem, Zion? Because the Lord does. Because He's returning to Zion and us with Him. Because He will rule and reign from Zion over all the world and and finally because, hey, that's my future residence. That's where I'm going to live. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. (laughs) Dang, our zip code, as I've said before, is New Jerusalem. The heavenly Zion. It is where we are heading... He says, I, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, Revelation 21. For the first heaven, the first earth passed away. There's no longer any city. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first order of things has passed away. But He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. 
There is a Zion today at Jerusalem that will give way to the Zion of the Kingdom, that millennial reign of Christ, that will give way to new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned. And that, my friends, is where we're headed. And that's a good reason to be a patriot of the city of Zion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for the encouragement of Your Word tonight, for the uplifting comments and statements and truths and promises listed there. And may we again state clearly, Father, we believe that You have a plan for Israel in as much as we believe You have planned our salvation. And we hang our faith and our trust on the very promises that You promised them. Because, Father, if, if You don't keep Your Word to them... We don't expect You to keep Your Word to us. And yet, Lord, we say that even tongue-in-cheek because You are a covenant-keeping God. You make promises and You don't break them. Though we are faithless, You remain faithful. For, Father, You can't deny Yourself. And so praise You, God of all faithfulness. Praise You, our firm foundation. Praise You, Jesus, pegged that the pillars of belief might stand. God, we thank You. Lord, we praise You. Adonai, we submit ourselves to You in Jesus' name. Amen.